Please open in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Doing of Thessalonians. It's our third sermon in the series as we work through this, one of the earliest letters ever written to a young church planted by Paul and the other missionaries. I think only Galatians is earlier. And there's debate on which one's earlier, this one or Galatians. So as you're turning there, it's page 835 in your blue Bibles, if you have one of those. Paul's been dealing with how the church was created through the gospel, how the gospel, um, and then how the gospel goes out from the church. And now he's going to be talking about his ministry of the gospel. So it's going to start in chapter 2, our reading, verse 1. Please stand together for the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. Hear God's word to you this very morning. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for the praise of men, from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles, so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inerrant word may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning you may be seated 
I need to pray one more time. Let's pray together. Father, what a, a beautiful passage of the heart and life of the Apostle Paul and his fellow missionary servants. We pray that as your word is delivered this morning, that you would anoint it by your Holy Spirit. That, Father, you would give us attentive hearts, eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would take your word to the bank as your very word, that we would trust in it, and that through the power of your spirit, we would apply it to every area of our lives. So be with us now, Lord, that we would receive it as the living word it is, and so um, enjoy the fruit that was intended to come from it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me recap very quickly. So far we've seen, as we've looked at this wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul, we've seen the marks of a true church. What's a true church? We see in verse, uh, verses 1 to 3, for instance, of chapter 1, a true church has three Christian graces that are the chief Christian graces. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul says he could see they were a true church because he could see these things. They weren't just in their hearts, but he could tell they had faith, hope, and love. Why? Because they had faith that worked. They had love that strenuously labored. And they had hope that caused them to endure and persevere. So he says, you got the right one, baby. Second thing we saw was three telltale signs that a church is truly loved and chosen by God. That means, what are the real signs of genuine Christian conversion? Listen, that's an important one. I'm going to get that up online, I promise, if you missed it. It's important to know how we know people are truly been, have truly been saved and transformed by the gospel. And he mentions in the text, it's how the gospel came to them effectually with power in the Holy Spirit with deep conviction how they received it they turned from idols right to serve the living and true God and to wait for God's son from heaven who rescues us from the coming wrath and then how they modeled they copied the apostles and other missionaries and they became a model to others and then true conversion shows itself in what the, the gospel rang out from the Thessalonians all over the known world, the Greek world, the uh, ancient Europe. Well, this morning we turn to chapter 2, and now Paul goes from the church to the gospel to the gospel ministry. What does a true gospel ministry look like? That's pretty important. Especially nowadays as we have radio, we have internet, we have television, and there are all kinds of preachers saying all kinds of things. So we have to see here a very brief context. We're going to jump right into this. What you have to know, it's important for those of, those of you who have not been with us the last few weeks. What happened is Paul preached like three Sabbaths in a row. Um, a number of folks came to know the Lord, Jews, Gentiles, some prominent Greek women. And um, the unbelieving Jews got jealous. So they stirred up some rebel-rousing Gentiles in the marketplace. And they came after Paul and the missionaries. 
so that it was so that it was so intense the persecution that they had a Paul and Silas had to slip out at night on the down low and they left to Berea and then obviously that he Paul doesn't ever take a break you know I always think about like me I'd be like you know the beach in Greece is nice this time of year just saying but he doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes right to Berea, does the same thing, and those same people chase him out of Berea. And so on and so on. Now here's the issue. Paul kept trying to get back to this young model church that he saw the Holy Spirit so, working so mightily in, but he says later in his epistle, Satan stopped him. And so since there was a lack of communication, hello, you know, like in a marriage or in a relationship, the, when there's a lack of communication, we start assuming all kinds of crazy things about each other. Well, in this case, Paul was concerned that the church would begin to think that he didn't care. That, that he was in it for any other, some other ungodly reason. And so the enemies of the gospel were like, let's take advantage of this. While Paul, so they started spreading rumors about the Apostle Paul and about his ministry. And about his motivations. And basically they would say things like, oh yeah, this great apostle to the Gentiles. He cares so much for you. He was here for about three or four weeks and boom, he hightails it as soon as it gets hot. He's nothing but a charlatan. He's a, he's a visiting preacher that just takes the money. Whoa, take the money and run. Well, Paul knew that the opponents of the gospel, because he knew Satan's wiles, would try to discredit him. And, and here's what's, what's interesting yet to see is Paul knew that they would begin to doubt the message that he preached. Because if they doubt him and his integrity, then they start to say, well, maybe what he told us ain't true. You know, unfortunately, we know of situations, and only by the grace of God do we stand. Can I get an amen? where you will have a man, I remember somebody saying to me, oh, I love the way this man preached. I used to listen to him all the time. He was so helpful to my walk. And then all of a sudden, he kind of disappeared. I'm like, what happened? And then I found out he was reassigned quietly to a little country church. And then I found out that he was wrapped up in a big sexual scandal. And so what does that person start to think? Well, I wonder all that stuff that he taught me. Right? So what Paul does, he knows this is very important, he sets forth the evidence that his ministry among them was approved by God. It had the stamp of the Holy Spirit. So to put it succinctly, I only have three things I'm going to point out, but man, there's a lot in this. But Pete's going to pick it up next week, so don't worry. I'm going to try to leave some room for him. What we're going to see is that he points out the missionaries, three things about a, a, a true Ministry of the gospel, the missionaries' godly motivation, listen, their holy consecration, and because I'm a preacher, i got to say, it led to the Thessalonians' transformation. So, so motivation, consecration, transformation. Let's take a look at the missionaries' godly motivation. So I'm speaking about Paul a lot, but notice Paul says we. I'm going to just point that out right at the beginning. He always says we, we. We, he refers to him, Timothy, Silas, the other missionaries that helped, okay? So sometimes I'll slip into saying just Paul, but you're with me, okay? So the first thing Paul mentions in connection with he and his fellow missionaries' pure motives for preaching the gospel of the Thessalonians, listen to this, this is very important, is the circumstances 
that led him to bringing the gospel to them in the first place. Look at verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you the gospel, what? In spite of strong opposition. See, Paul is saying this in effect. Look, even though our proclamation of the gospel in Philippi led to imprisonment, led to being beaten, led to being humiliated, to be put in stocks in prison, we didn't let that stop us. As soon as we got out of that situation, guess what we did? We took a beeline here because we were concerned that you would come to know Jesus and be saved too and be joined to his universal church. And then he says, with God's help, we dared to bring you his gospel. Even though, listen, this is what he's saying, even though in doing so, we knew for a fact we were going to have to face more of the same. Yippee! You know, you remember, remember Avengers? Anybody watch the movie Avengers? The first one? You remember um, Iron Man is, is like implanted in the cement? And he goes, yay, we won. Yippee! That's, that's kind of like Paul, you know what I'm saying? He goes from one persecution to the next. And even when he's victorious, it's not without scars, both inner, inward and outward. Look, let me put it to you this way. This is what he's saying. If we brought you the gospel out of self-serving motives and or, or in order what we could get out of it, then we're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Because whenever we do that, what, what, what comes our way? Imprisonment, persecution, suffering. So we see that in Philippi. We saw it then in, in, now in Thessalonica. And then when he went to Berea, it was nothing but more of the same. And I want you to see something that's very important about a true ministry of the gospel. He says, he highlights that it was only with God's help that they dared to preach the gospel to them. In spite of the strong opposition. In other words, a true gospel ministry puts their faith, puts their trust in who? In God. Because only God's going to get me through this mess. If they were ministering their, the gospel in, in their own power for worldly gain, they would have given up a long time ago. Listen, John Stott puts it this way. People are prepared to suffer only for what they believe in. Why in the world else? Like I said, if, if there weren't genuine servants, they would have said, hey, man, this is, not, this is for the birds. And actually, the birds would have flew away, too. It's a God thing. Paul continues his defense in verse 3. Look at this. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. So see, your method does matter, doesn't it? On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. So look, if a willingness to suffer for the faith is a mark of genuine gospel ministry, then the second thing, it's very important to see this, is a desire to please God, not men. We got enough men pleasers. We got enough give the people what they want. 
You want to know one of the problems of the American church? It's just that. What do people want? And that's what we'll give them. True ministers of the gospel know better than to judge their ministry's performance by either the praises or the frowns of their people. Look, I had somebody in my last, last ministry that I served in for nine years, church, that they wrote a letter that you would have thought I was in league with Satan. It was scathing. Literally, a week or two later, I, all of a sudden, I was Mother Teresa and the Apostle Paul all wrapped up in one. But here's the point. As you grow in Christ and as you get wise, you realize you don't listen to the praise and you don't listen to the criticism because there's one person you got to listen to, and that's God who tests our hearts. So when I lay in bed at night, I look to God, and I know I don't have to listen to anybody else's encouragement or discouragement. I know before the Lord and his word, have I been faithful? What are my motives? As the old hymn puts it, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Paul could say from the heart that he and his fellow missionaries were not trying to please men, but rather God. So, you know, that lovely statement that I think we always have to be reminded of. We need to live our lives before the audience of one. We're always, listen, brothers and sisters, it's human nature. We try to please who? The crowd. God says, if you follow the crowd, guess where you're going? Wide and broad is the road that leads where? Not to heaven, to destruction. What's the road that leads to life? Narrow. You got to keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. He'll never lead you astray. You know, things are popular today, not popular tomorrow. It's funny, I was thinking about this. You look at like the 1920s, what they thought was all the rave, right? Then you look at the 30s, and, you look, and we all look back and we all laugh. But then today, we fall into the same trap. Whatever new thing, oh man, I'm hip. Till next year. Right? I just learned the last thing that they said, and now, oh, that was so last year. Really? Peter Cartwright was a preacher in the 1800s. One day he was a visiting preacher at a Methodist church, and General Andrew Jackson, soon to be president of the United States, walked in. So the pastor behind him tapped him on the shoulder and said this, Andrew Jackson's here, Andrew Jackson. Cartwright then continued his sermon without missing a beat, saying this out loud to the congregation. I don't care if Andrew Jackson is here, for if he doesn't repent of his sins and believe in Jesus, he'll perish in hell just like anyone else. After the service, the pastor of the church ran up to the general and tried to apologize for the preacher's comments. You know, he's a visiting preacher, he's young, whatever it is. But this is what Andrew Jackson said when he saw Cartwright after the service. Listen, this is beautiful. Mr. Cartwright, you are a man after my own heart. I'm very surprised at Mr. Mack to think that I would be offended at you. No, sir. I told him that I highly approved of your independence, that a minister of Jesus Christ ought to love everybody and fear no mortal man. I told Mr. Mack that if I had a few thousand such independent, fearless officers as you were and a well-drilled army, I could take old England. And here's the beauty. A number of years later, that seed bore fruit because Andrew Jackson came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
You got to understand something about Paul, and he wanted his people, the Thessalonians, to see this. They were no respecter of persons. You know, whether you're, someone was sitting in front of them, uh, like as a church player that supports them, ten thousand dollars a month, or whether it's it's the, the the homeless person that needs the love of Jesus, it's the same gospel coming from the same heart. His motivation, he says, came not from greed or desire to please man. Rather, he ministered the gospel out of godly motivation. What's the godly motivation? To please God and to bring his message of salvation to whoever will listen. Second thing. So it's godly motivation. Secondly, godly consecration. This is what he says in verse 6. As the apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. So what's the next couple of marks of genuine ministry? We see it right here. Motherly love or sacrificial motherly love and hard work. To put that the other way, a lack of greed. They weren't lovers of money, and they weren't in it for the cash. So Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the character that he and his fellow church planners had among them. And this first analogy that he uses is a wonderful analogy. It's actually of a mother, if you look at the Greek word, of a mother that's breastfeeding, nursing her little baby. That's Paul saying, that's how tender we, he goes, look, you remember? You yourselves, how, how do we treat you? With love, with compassion, with nurturing. We took our calling very seriously to love you in the name of Jesus. And he says, look, instead of being a burden, did we take a penny from you? Because you have to understand something. He was an apostle. He was an itinerant missionary. He did not take a penny from the Thessalonians. He worked as a tent maker part-time at night, and then he preached during the day, apparently. And he would also be supported from other churches. But he would not take it from them so no one could come around and say he was in it for the money. It says elsewhere in Scripture that the, the pastor who's a regular pastor is worthy of their wages, 1 Timothy 5. So there's a place for that, obviously. But here he's saying, I did not take that privilege. I could have. He, later on, he says, I could, he says, we're here. I could have been a burden to you because I'm an apostle. But I didn't use that privilege. And notice something. I want you to see something throughout this text. I, it jumps out at you when you read it. Notice how many times he says, he calls them as the witness. He says, you know, in verse 1, in verse 2, as you know, verse 5, you know, verse 9, surely you remember, verse 11, you are witnesses. I think he's going somewhere with this. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking that. Paul's point is that they were witnesses themselves, that all that negative talk about him and all his fellow missionaries was nothing but a bunch of malarkey. It was completely made up stuff. So listen, it's pretty exciting to me when I find out that we didn't invent fake news. Fake news was around during the time of the Apostle Paul. Because they were telling a lot of lies about him. No, he says this. Listen, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but our very lives as well, because you would become so dear to us. This illustration has always convicted me. A Henry Ward Beecher once asked a young minister, you love to preach, don't you? And as any good seminarian or young preacher would say, he said, I sure do. And then he said, but do you love the people to whom you preach? Different story. Yeah, that, that wasn't, yeah. That's convicting. That's really convicting. Well, Paul could answer with a resounding yes. I got the wounds. You don't believe me. I got the beatings. I hung out in prison. Not a fun place. But I did this for the glory of God, and I did it for your good. Listen to verse 10. He said, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. So here's another genuine mark of gospel ministry. Mark it down if you're taking notes. A, a true gospel ministry strives to model a godly life and exhort others to follow that godly life, that model. F.F. Bruce writes this, Only if they conducted themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel which they pro proclaimed could they reasonably expect their converts to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Listen, of course that's what any good father would do. None of this, don't do what I do, just do what I say stuff. You ever hear somebody say that? Paul says, uh-uh. I'm not telling you just do what I say. I'm saying by all means, <laughs> do what I do. You want to talk convicting to all of us preachers, ministers, leaders in the church, and even individual Christians, amen? Do what I do. Wow, that'll straighten you up pretty quick. And that's why parenting has a way of throwing some cold water in your face. Because you know what, whatever flaws you have, your kids are going to highlight those stinking things. They're going to be written in bold letters across the sky. Just saying. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father. Beautiful on Father's Day to have this, isn't it? For you know that we dealt with you, each of you, dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Listen, I've said this in the past and I have not changed my mind. The hardest job on this planet is parenting. <laughs> Period. It is rough, man. To try to have the wisdom to know to have enough of firmness and discipline, yet enough comfort and love and tenderness and trying to blend those two, truth with love, Right? That's a hard blend. I wish I could just put it in the blender and it would mix it up nicely, but it doesn't seem to work that way. So listen to this. That's what makes missionary work and pastoral work so hard. Because guess what you are? You are a parent in a church. So now you don't only have two, three, five, even ten kids. Now sometimes you got hundreds. Talk about driving people to go crazy. I won't say what I was going to say. Ministers are called to have gentleness, patience, sacrificial love of a mother. Listen, and the purity, firmness, and tenderness of a father. And so this blend is really hard, and I'll tell you why. 
That's why in God's ideal plan, and so many of us don't have the ideal plan, in God's ideal plan, you have a mom and a dad. Can I get an amen? In the ideal plan, because the mother's the nurturer and has mercy and gives you that tender care, and the father comes with the firmness, right? How many times my mom would say, wait till your dad comes home? And then I'd be like, no, mom, mom, no, no, no. What did you want me to do? What was it? That's just the way it ran, right? So you got the firmness. But here's what happens. When there's too much coddling, what do you do to your child? You destroy him. Make him a little spoiled, weak person who actually can't do for themselves. Not a good thing. But what happens when you're too harsh? You also destroy the kid. They have no self-worth. They, have no, they feel like they can't do anything on their own. You're angry, bitter. So you need both. You need that nurture. You need that love. And then sometimes, listen. You need that kick in the pants. You know, I believe in gospel motivation. I believe in gospel sanctification. But sometimes you do have to say, knock it off. Snap out of it. And you know, notice what he says here. I think it's, it's so beautiful. He talks about um, how God, to serve God, who what? Called you. In other words, you have a higher calling, son, daughter, people of God. You need to, the whole thrust of, in, the, in the New Testament of, of the Christian life is what? To live a life worthy of the gospel you've been called to. You've received it by grace. God's called you out of his mercy. Now, by his grace and in his power, with the help of all the means of grace and the Holy Spirit and your pastors and leaders who exhort you, walk like it. Like a, like a son or a daughter of the king. And I want to point one last thing out, and we'll go to the last point, which is shorter than the other ones. Take heart. But notice what the we here is very important. Paul isn't saying that he single-handedly ministered to each of them. But notice, they did so as a team. And I'll tell you, that, that is a blessing to me, because that's the norm in the New Testament. Even the Apostle Paul was not a, a, a single hero. Here I come to save the day. That wasn't him. He had Paul, I mean, uh, Timothy. He had Silas. He had uh, Aquila, Priscilla, and others. The minister together. It's great. You know, I remember um, Dave and I, when we would always, you know, we didn't even have to have formal meetings because we saw each other each day. Then Pete came. And then all of a sudden, we had to have staff meetings, right, Dave? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. But I'll tell you, as much as Dave and I were like, seriously, now we've got to actually be formal and make this thing real? The cool thing about it, though, is when we come and we have meetings, it's so nice to know we're part of a team, that we're not in this alone. I mean, of course, the Lord is with us, but it's so nice to have brothers watching our backs and brothers and sisters in other circumstances. So Paul defends their gospel ministry, points out their godly motivation, their godly consecration. And last thing, just for a few moments briefly, that led to godly transformation of the hearers of the gospel, the recipients of the gospel, the Thessalonians. Look at 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work within you who believe, my goodness, I could preach. I could preach this morning. We need brothers, especially, we need to cling to this word with all of our might. I cannot tell you, since the, since the very beginning, as we can see, Paul was already maligned. But in our day and age, 
The Apostle Paul is constantly put in the doghouse. Constantly, oh, well, I don't like what he says here. Here he's slipping into Judaism. This isn't really authoritative. Oh, this passage of scripture? Well, he changed his mind later. And they try to say he contradicted himself. Here's the point. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. When he speaks like this, when he speaks the gospel and things related to the gospel, what comes after it, just like the prophets of old, is guess what? Thus saith who? The Lord. I had a friend over the other, yesterday, and we were talking, he was a fellow pastor, and he said one time he was preaching a sermon, and this, this couple came to him after the, the service, and, and the, the woman said, we're leaving the church. And he said, okay, I'm just wondering why. And she said, well, because uh, I don't agree with you set up there, um, and had something to do with uh, sexual immorality, okay? And, um, she's, and he said, well, hey, fine, let's, let's look at the scriptures. What does it say about this? And she goes, well, I just feel that God told me. And then what she said totally contradicted what the Bible teaches. And no matter how much he wanted to go to the Bible, she wouldn't even go there with him. That's not a crazy situation or one-off. It's the world we live in right now. And you know, just as tenderly a father has to, you know, how a father uh, trains and loves and educates uh, the children, the same way pastors have to take the hit. Listen, we're going to be called homophobe. We're going to be called anti-Semites. We're going to be called all kinds of names, Bible thumpers, and hopefully without justification. But because... When, when I go and I have to minister the gospel, I, I, there's that great balance. I love the people in front of me, and, and, and I really don't want to um, hurt them or be harsh with them, but I have one person I'm more concerned with. I do not want to offend a holy God who called me to this ministry. I do not want to say something untrue because I'm afraid of getting hurt. I'd rather die a thousand deaths than have God say to me, you compromised my gospel you said what you wanted to say because you were afraid of what was going to happen I entrusted my gospel to you how dare you bring a different message in my name and I, there are sometimes I'm counseling I'm thinking okay in the back of my mind I'm going to be saying goodbye to them but I do want to tell this one story. I remember the very first counseling session I ever did for premarital counseling. I was so excited. Pastor Dan said, you could take this one. I went, whoo-hoo, my first marriage counseling. So it was a professed Christian woman and a non-believing guy. Thank you for my first one. So I'm like, OK, we're going to work this one out. I said, so what up? the first thing, I'm all nervous going into this. And I'm thinking, OK, they're living together outside of marriage, not doing the right thing. So I said, you know, the first thing we need to do, and I said, you guys, until the marriage day, I need you guys to live separately. And you know what? The guy, you could come live with my family, so there won't be a hardship. Just come live with us. for." And it wasn't a long time. I don't know. It was like a month or two months, whatever it was they had planned. And the guy who was a non-believer goes, okay. And the supposed Christian, go, the Christian woman gets quiet, starts crying, and says, I can't do it. I was befuddled. I thought she would have been like having a party, you know, and been like thanking me. And instead, that was the end of our counseling. Didn't see him again. And I got threats from the unbeliever's family that he, they were going to beat the snot out of me. That's what I got. And I thought, oh, 
<laughs> so that's what happens when you tell the truth in love. Fast forward, decade later, I'm in upstate New York. I get a phone call from that woman. Hi, hi, Pastor Santo, and it's me. You know, I'm sorry I haven't heard from you in a long time. Um, I just wanted to tell you, you were right. Now, you know, I do the Italian. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, well, why, what's up? She's like, well, my, my, my husband left me. He's living with a, a, another woman, and I just know he loved you and respected you so much. Could you call him and talk to him? <laughs> and I'm like thinking, oh, it would be my delight. Thanks. But so... Um, Said, of course I will. Hung up the phone, called him. And, you know, he, we always had a good rapport. And he said to me, look, man, I, I'm stuck now. I already promised this other woman who has a kid, you know, that I would do this, I would do that. I say, no, 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 you don't understand. You had no right to make that promise. You already have a wife and a kid, and you need to go back home. You know, I gave him the whole hard line. I thought, boy, this guy's going to, you know. He went back home. Their marriage is restored. I only say that to say sometimes God does use it to bring about a good turn. And, and so, but I didn't know that for 10 years or so. For 10 years or so, I thought I was an epi epic, you know, epic fail, you know. But God will use it when we stand true to his name. And Paul praises God. He says, man, when you received the word from us, you received it as it actually is. Not the word of men. Not my nice ideas. But God's word. For you brothers, listen, this is the last thing, and it, it gets seriously, so you've got to give me just two minutes here. He says, you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, that means the Gentiles, the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap upon their sins to the limit the wrath of God has come upon them at last. So listen, this is the strongest word, these are the strongest words Paul ever spoke that we know of against his own race. It's very strong language, and some people immediately rush to say he's anti-Semitic, which is funny in the sense because he's Jewish. One commentator says, no, he's not an anti-Semite. He's, he's simply mentioning bald facts. Listen, this is what, what Paul says, right? He says they, they killed Jesus, they persecuted the prophets. That's the way, the majority of Jews, both in the Old and New Testament, rejected Messiah. It's nothing new. Paul points out in the Old Testament, who were real believers? A remnant. In the New Testament, a significant minority, but a remnant. And what you have to understand, Paul is saying, don't be troubled by these guys who are saying that, you know, you're not, you don't follow the right religion now and that you need to come back because they're the ones that killed the Lord and the prophets. They rejected the gospel. Listen, it's only what the gospel of John says. What? He came to his own and what? His own received him not. Now, don't forget, this is the same Paul that in Romans 9 says, if I could... I would be sent to hell for my people. I would be cut off from Christ if my people could be saved. This is not someone that hates his own people. This is someone that says, God, if you could take me in their place, do it. But it's impossible. Only Jesus could do that. And I want you to see one last thing about it. 
The key to understanding this is where Paul, Paul's, Paul's heart is here. You want to read his heart, not just his firmness. They keep us from preaching the gospel so the Gentiles could be what? Saved. You want to do a little test? Get between a mama bear and her cub. And see how gentle her words are. What's the mama bear going to do? I'll tear you up. So Paul's issue was that they were preventing the Gentiles from hearing the gospel and getting saved. That was his issue. This is a, a man who literally put his money where his mouth was. He, he, he had an open ministry. It was visible. He, wasn't, he didn't hide anything. How many of us could dare to do that? Paul didn't simply love to preach. He loved those he preached the word to. And he was jealous for them with a godly jealousy. So my time is up this morning. Pete's going to pick up where I left off, so I don't feel like um, we're going to miss too much. So let me say this, and then we'll pray. A genuine gospel ministry, listen, this is important as a recap. A general gospel ministry is willing to suffer for the gospel and the salvation of men, number one. It seeks to please God. It loves people. It has godly motivation, not greed for greed or power or prestige. It mixes both parental love and parental firmness. And it doesn't preach a man-made message, but the very word of God as it has been handed down to us by the hand-picked apostles of the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's hold to this gospel. Let's model this gospel. And by the grace of God and only with his help, let's spread this gospel. Atlantic City needs us here. Let's pray. Father God, only you could give us the strength in the midst of struggle and trial and failure and weakness to keep on living the gospel, preaching the gospel, exhorting, encouraging. So Father, we pray for New City Fellowship here. We pray for all true gospel works, gospel churches, that here in America especially you would send revival, Lord. That all your elect would come to saving faith, not only here, but all over the world, so that it would speed the day. We see our brother and sister here from France who are spreading the gospel there. Lord, strengthen their hands to proclaim your gospel, both here and abroad. For the glory of your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.